Okay, I'm going to put a disclaimer on this episode. Yes, it contains scenes of violence, and yes, there is a fair bit of what might be called potty humor, and yes, this all comes straight from the Bible. But still, you've been warned. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and closed the doors of the roof chamber on him, and locked them. When I was young, one of the first Bible stories that ever grabbed my attention was the story of Ehud in the third chapter of Judges. It grabbed my attention as a young boy because it included all these gory details, like you see in that passage I just read. But I also liked Ehud because I identified with him. He, like me, was left-handed and his left-handedness actually played a key role in his success. As someone who had mostly experienced left-handedness as something that caused me problems, I liked that about him. As I've grown older and deepened my understanding of biblical narrative, I can only say that I have come to appreciate the story more. So, I guess it was inevitable that I would turn to this story at some point in my podcast. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 4.12, Ehud the Bible's greatest southpaw. Ehud kept telling himself that it was an honor, that his fellow tribesfolk must have respected him a great deal to give him this job. It was up to him to gather together all of the tribute from the clans of Benjamin. They chose him because they believed that he would be fair and even-handed in all that he did. But the basic injustice of the situation really chafed him. The tribute was owed to Eglon, king of the Moabites. Over the past several years, there had been increasing Moabite incursions into the territories of Benjamin, as well as the territories of Reuben and Gad, on the far side of the Jordan River. The Moabites had just been so unrelenting in their raiding and looting that the people had been desperate for relief. A peace treaty was negotiated, but the Israelites did not send good negotiators and the annual tribute that was owed was breaking the people. Most of all, Ehud hated the very idea that his people, 
the noble people of Benjamin should be so subservient to a foreign power. The people of Benjamin were strong and powerful. They had some of the most renowned fighters in the entire region. By some strange twist of fate, the children who were born to the Benjaminites had a very strong tendency to be left-handed. Rather than seeing this as a disadvantage or even a curse, the people of Benjamin saw every left-hander as a special gift from Yahweh. Every left-handed male was devoted to special training. The Benjaminites knew that their enemies were not used to fighting against left-handed warriors and did not know how to defend themselves. Left-handed Benjaminite slingers were also justly famous for their strength and accuracy. It was said that they were able to sling a stone at a hair from a great distance and not miss. With such a renown and ability, it was frankly insulting that the people of Benjamin had to suffer such humiliation. Ehud counted himself among the renowned left-handed fighters of Benjamin, which probably helped to explain why he had been given the honor of his position. But, in many ways, the fact that he was a warrior made it all that much worse, that he was effectively an agent of the subjugation of Benjamin to Moab. There was one big reason why Benjamin was famous for its slingers in those days. The technology of working in metal was a closely guarded secret, kept by a few powers, and it was practically unknown among the Israelite tribes. And so the tribes had learned to fight with sticks and stones, and in a pinch, the jawbone of an ass could make a deadly weapon. So it was not easy for Ehud to engage the services of a metalsmith. He had to travel, wearing a disguise, to a neighboring tribe, and meet with a man of whom he had only heard whispered rumors. He went to his house in the dead of night. Ehud had a very clear idea of what he wanted. He described to the man a blade made with the finest bronze available. It would be as long as the length of Ehud's arm from his elbow to his palm, short enough to easily escape notice while still being long enough to do some major damage. It was to have two sharp edges, but most of all, it was to have a point. Oh yes, there was a point to this dagger. It took two full weeks for the smith to gather enough metal and to form the blade. In the meantime, Ehud obtained some fine leather and created a thin sheath that he strapped to his right thigh under his robes. When his dagger was finished, it fit perfectly. Everything was in place, but still 
he sought for some sign from his god that it was time to act. Ehud came to the city of King Eglon of Moab with a company of slaves and bearers to present the annual tribute. There were hundreds of ephahs of grain, hins of oil, and baths of wine. Ehud knew that as a result of this tribute, many Benjaminite families would be going hungry this winter. What's more, it seemed clear that King Eglon had little need of such bounty. To call the man fat would have been a criminal understatement. Eglon was so obese that he could scarcely move more than a few steps without the support of his servants. As was expected, Ehud pronounced himself overawed by the magnificence of Eglon's girth. But inside, as he thought of many hungry families that he knew, he felt nothing but disgust. Ehud felt strongly that something needed to be done, but still he waited. He needed some sign, some indication, and so the tribute ceremonies being completed, Ehud bowed low and took leave of the king. The path back from the city of Palms took the Benjaminites near to the ancient sanctuary city of Gilgal, and so Ehud decided to send the others on while he turned aside to that sacred place. Gilgal was the city where, in ancient times, the tribes had come together to form a covenant with their god, Yahweh. It was there that God had given the land to the tribes, had promised that they would be able to hold it forever. Surely this matter of paying tribute to the Moabites was a violation of such a promise. And so Ehud determined that if there was a sign to be found, Gilgal would be the place to seek it. In ancient times, stones had been set up at Gilgal and carved to commemorate the ancient covenant. They were the eternal witness to the promises of Yahweh. And so Ehud went and stood among them to seek his sign and wisdom. He stood there a while, hoping for some heavenly voice, but hearing nothing. His eyes kept turning to the standing stones, that silent witness that spoke still even after the long years. And then, suddenly, it hit him. What need did he have for a sign? Did not the stones themselves speak more eloquently than any heavenly voice? Ehud turned and began to make his way back towards the city of Palms. When Ehud arrived back at Eglon's palace, things were much quieter than they had been before. 
the tribute ceremonies had been completed, and most of the king's high officials had returned to their own estates. When Ehud came in this time, there were only a few guards to meet him. Ehud insisted that he needed to see the king immediately, but the guards hesitated. Apparently the king, as was his custom at this hour of the day, had retired to his private chamber on the roof of the palace. Don't you understand? The men winked at him. The king is sitting on his other throne right now. Ehud didn't understand. The very notion that a latrine might be installed inside a building was so completely foreign to the Benjaminite that he couldn't even imagine such a thing. He assumed that they were making fun of him because he came from such a primitive people. He insisted that he needed to see the king right away. The guard shrugged and prepared to let him through. When Ehud had arrived earlier with the tribute, he and all of his men had been given a cursory search. The guards had not been particularly worried, not enough to search carefully, because they knew that Eglon would be surrounded by his bodyguard. This time, knowing that he was going to be alone with the king, Ehud was searched much more carefully. They even felt underneath his robes. They particularly ran their hands down his left thigh, where any normal assassin would carry a dagger. Apparently, the Moabites had little curiosity about the people that they exploited. They had not even bothered to learn about the prowess of Benjamin's famous left-handed warriors. The guard said that he was free to go into the king. Ehud smiled grimly. Ehud stepped into the rooftop chamber and pulled the door closed behind him. He heard the latch click, and then he stopped, amazed. It was a small room, dominated by one piece of furniture, an enormous stool. It had obviously been custom-built for the king because it was wide enough to accommodate his ample buttocks. The king was perched atop it, with his magnificent robes all pulled down in disarray. Eglon looked up in surprise, but then he smiled as he recognized the Benjaminite. Ah, he cried, you are Ehud from Benjamin, are you not? What brings you back here so soon? I hope, whatever it is, it is important because you have interrupted me when I'm about to start the most important uh, duty of my day. Oh, this is important, replied Ehud. I bring you a message from a god. 
Eglon's eyes lit up instantly, for there was clearly nothing that he loved more than to receive divine inside information. He hoisted himself to his feet and tottered eagerly towards the Benjaminite. Ehud's left hand was already on the hilt of his dagger. In one fluid motion, it was unsheathed from the leather scabbard and then resheathed deep into the belly of the king. Ehud had plunged it so deep that the heavy layer of fat that lined the king's belly closed over the hilt, and so he left it there. The king grunted in shock and then let out a great sigh as he slowly sank to the floor. The last kingly act of his life was to finally release his bowels and soil himself on the floor. As Ehud stood over the massive body of the king, he felt a wave of nausea overwhelm him. It wasn't just from the smell, though that was certainly bad enough. He was even more overtaken by the realization that he had not thought beyond this moment. If he went back out and down to leave by the main entrance, Surely someone would come and check on the king before he had gone more than a few paces. He would be hunted down and killed in short order. If only there were some way for him to get away from the king's body and yet also leave the door locked from the inside, perhaps he might have a chance. But Ehud saw no other exits Except, what was that great stool that the king had been sitting on? It took only a few moments of examination for Ehud to unravel the mystery. So great had King Eglon's girth been that he had been simply unable to squat over a cesspit like a normal man and so this special stool had been constructed for him. As Ehud looked down the hole, he realized that it must be connected to an outside conduit that could be cleaned out by one of the slaves. Well, Ehud reasoned, if a slave could get in that way, then surely he could get out. So, yeah, there were slaves in King Eglon's household who did have rather unpleasant duties. But before you feel too much sympathy for the slave whose job it was to clean out the conduit that Ehud just passed through, consider the poor slaves 
who had been assigned to the door of the rooftop chamber that day. They knew only too well how angry Eglon could be when disturbed during his special private time. Slaves had been beaten half to death for such transgressions in the past. But Eglon had now been in his chamber for so long that it stretched belief that he could still be busy inside. And yet, as they sniffed around the door, their noses told them otherwise. And so they dithered and waited all afternoon until they really had no choice and the keeper of the keys was sent for. When the door finally opened, they immediately recognized that they were in for much more than a severe beating. And so it was that Ehud was long gone before the alarm was even raised. He made it all the way to his home territory and called for the men of Benjamin to take up their slings. Then, according to the terms of the ancient covenant of the tribes, wherein each of the tribes had sworn an oath before Yahweh to come to the aid of the others in great need, he sent messengers to call up the men of the much larger tribe of Ephraim. Together they would be able to defeat the now leaderless Moabites. The stories of the judges in the book of Judges all follow a very particular pattern. The people of Israel are disobedient to the law. As a result, God subjects them for a period of time to a foreign invader. Then, once the time of penance is over, God raises up a leader, called a judge, who unites the tribes to drive out the foreigners. The judge then rules until death over a time of peace and prosperity, at which point the cycle starts all over again. Ehud is the second figure in this overall narrative, but he doesn't seem to fit in the pattern easily. The central part of his story is not an account of him unifying the tribes to fight the invaders, but a rather graphic story of a successful assassination. In addition, some of the language of the story is rather archaic and difficult to translate. This has led to the theory that the story of Ehud is actually a pre-existing popular folktale that circulated, presumably, among the Benjaminites that has subsequently been shoehorned into the overall narrative structure of the Book of Judges. Three things have fascinated me about this story since I first read it as a boy. First, of course, is the graphic violence of the assassination story itself. Second is the emphasis on Ehud's left-handedness. This does not appear to be just a plot point, something that permits Ehud to smuggle his knife into the king's presence. There seems to be more to it than that. Left-handedness is only mentioned twice in the Bible, and both times it is associated with Benjaminite warriors. 
the elite left-handed slingers, appear near the end of the Book of Judges in another graphically horrible tale. Ambidextrous Benjaminite warriors are also praised in the Book of Samuel. This has led a few to suggest that perhaps there really was a genetic predisposition to left-handedness within the tribe, or that it was something that was particularly nourished and encouraged when it appeared. As a left-hander, I've always found that idea rather fascinating. The third fascinating thing about the story is the apparent bathroom humor. The idea that Ehud surprised Eglon while he sat on the toilet, Eglon soiling himself as he died, and Ehud's subsequent escape down the latrine are all elements that are hinted at in the narrative, even if they are not explicitly stated. Presumably, these things are highlighted in the story because they gave the Israelites a chance to laugh at their enemies. But they are also things that made the story endlessly fascinating for a young boy on his first read through the Bible. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so that you can get the next one in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and I use two pieces, March of the Spoons and Hidden Agenda, as mood music for this episode. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible, show notes for this episode, with some extra notes on the translation difficulties, have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.